Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. Welcome back to our guest, Eli Vered Hazan from the Likud Party. And today in our second episode about the Likud Party, we're going to talk about forming the Likud, the first governments, the unity government, up until Shamir's defeat in 1992. And... I think, Ellie, that in a way, if we're looking at it, the famous Mahapach of 1977 was rooted in 1973 after the Yom Kippur War and everything that happens from there. You're right, but you have to remember, Kobe, that the election right after Yom Kippur War, Labour get 51 seats. I mean, it's one of the peaks of Labour, but yes, it took four years in order to assimilate, I would say, the public disappointment of the management of the Labour Party in general. There is no doubt that one of the reasons of the victory of Menachem Begin in 1977 was Yom Kippur War, but it was not the only thing. Think about it. When you are too many years in power, people want something new. More than that, if you remember, we spoke about the Mizrahi Jews that became a majority in the 1960s. They want to take part in the government and they're not allowed because the old leaders don't let them, the Ashkenazi. And of course, the joint Likud, we saw that in the beginning or the roots of the victory was in the municipal election of 1973. It was, in fact, the first time that new candidates in new cities, Mizrahi, most of them, one of them is Meir Shitri, the other is Moshe Katsar, later ministers and the president of Israel, they won the election. Meir Shitri was only 24 years old in Yavne that was controlled by Mapai, by Labour. He was, yeah, the, he was youngest the youngest mayor, mayor in Israel. Yeah, yes. in Israel. By the way, he's not the youngest MK. The youngest MK was Moshe Nisim, the right. Minister of Justice and Minister of Finance of Itzhak Shamir later, from the liberals inside Likud. But in fact, there are a lot of reasons why Likud had a victory in 1977, what we call the upheaval. The second thing, it was the corruption inside the, history, the unions yeah. and in Mapai in the government. And in a sense, it was a kind of a feeling of a recession after 1973. People were desperate, and they were looking for something new. The amazing thing is that not a lot of people believed that Menachem Begin will be able to win uh, the election, but it happens. Before we proceed, I want to touch on one thing, to refer to one thing which is extremely important. Israel is a democracy, but people tend to forget, or at least don't know, that until 1977, we had no democracies inside the parties. It means that every chairman of a party, Labour, Chirut, Liberals, and others, including the religious, including Mapam, the socialists, 
they used to decide who will be the MK, or at least who will be the candidates. The candidates were not elected by the people or by the members. However, they were appointed in the right. list to be an MKs. Menachem Begin was no different because he used to decide who is going to be number what in the list. But in the election of 1977, he had a heart attack. We have the Telchai Foundation of Likud. Telchai Foundation, it's an economic foundation of Likud, and it was about to bankrupt. And Menachem Begin had a heart attack. He was not part of the campaign of 1977. In that case, Shamir and Ezer Weizmann, if you remember, we spoke about it in the first episode, they took over and they decided to change the way people were elected into the list. In fact, they brought the democratization to Likud. They were the first one of what we call the old parties to bring democratization. Dash, the same center party, Dash was a brand new party, and they decided to make an open primaries. It was a completely new thing yeah. in the state of Israel. But Likud was the first one from the old parties to create our primaries. Now I have to remember how it works. In Likud, we have what we call the central committee members. In 1977, there were only a few hundred of them. Today, it's nearly 4,000 members. And Shamir and Ezer Weizmann, where Menachem Begin will not exist in part of the campaign, he had a heart attack in the hospital or rest at home, they decided that they open up the party. Without they, him knowing that. Without they him knowing be- that. Yeah, and it was mostly Shamir. He told to the Central Committee members, you are going to vote and you are going to elect the candidates for the Knesset for the election of 1977. As far as I know, Menachem Begin did not like it. And he punished Yitzhak Shamir by giving him to be the chairman or the speaker of the Knesset and not a minister. In 1977, but after he established the government. Yeah. <laughs> but why is it important? Because it was the first time that not only one man elect the list, but the central committee members. You have the power, you have a kind of distributing the power of election, to another people. More than that, think about the Mizrahi immigrants who used to be neglected in the past. Now they have a power, a lot of power. And more than that, after the election, they are the ruling party. If you wanted to understand why a lot of Mizrahi Jews until today support Netanyahu, support Likud, I can explain that there are many reasons, ideology and things like that. But one of the reasons is that They are the leading forces. They are not led anymore by anyone else. They are not neglected. They are not persecuted. They are the leaders. They are the kingmakers, in fact. And, you know, in a way, they are the new kings of the state of Israel, in a sense. Now, why I'm mentioning that? Because if you look at the list of Likud, in the beginning, in Herut, in Liberals, if you look in the names of the MKs, the total majority, almost 98%, are Ashkenazi. Right. Since 1977, it started to change. More and more and more Mizrahi. By the way, for instance, in 1984, it was, again, majority of Ashkenazi, but what's the difference? They were elected by those Mizrahi. It was a democracy. They were not elected by one man. They were elected by those who are the central committee members. But uh, in this, the 70s, I think it was still less of a Sfaradim, as they called in the U.S., like the Mizrahi fraction in the Likud. They had a bigger representation, but it was still not in big numbers as we see today. It took the it a couple of years. Complete, I tell you what, the majority were complete Ashkenazi. Don't forget that in the same time, still, most of the Central Committee members, if you remember, we spoke about the fighting family, members right. of the Irgun and the Lehi, they still the majority. Why I'm telling you that? Because 
the more times go by, you can see a new faces. And more than that, it creates a kind of a conflict between the old generation and the new generation. Now we can see it right now. Those who used to lead Likud in the past, they are not the leaders anymore. They are one of a player in a team. Yeah. That's what's happened. And by the way, they don't like it. If you ever ask, I mean, I don't know how much our listeners know that, but there is a lot of criticism of Benny Begin, Dan Meridor, Limor Livnat against Netanyahu. Why they criticize him? There are many reasons. One of them is that Netanyahu took the crown to those princesses. Now, I want to speak about this phenomenon. We're, we're going to get to it in our next episode, because okay. I would say that a lot of them criticize him because they are more moderate and he is more populist in a way. It's uh, not only that. Okay, but we will touch it later. In any case, I want to remind you that if until the 1970s, the 1980s, they used to get the big portion of the cake in the 1980s, it's completely different. They are right. not the only leaders in the party, and they don't like this. They don't like this democracy. But on the other hand, this is how Likud started to be what we call a people's party. Until the 1970s, mostly Ashkenazi, you know, free marketeers, not established members since the 1970s, 1980s, it started to change. More than that, we spoke about the Istadut, about the unions in Israel. One of the most interesting things is that until 1969, Cherut or Gachal is not part of the Istadut. In 1969, 1970, David Levy, who is a new representative of Mizrahi from the periphery, he was brought into Likud, by the way, by Menachem Begin, who was looking for new forces like that. Right. And he established the blue and white fraction inside the Istadut. It is the first time that Likud, Gachal, and later Likud, has become part of the unions. Now, for us, I don't like them. I'm free marketeer. I don't like the unions. I acknowledge that they need to be existed, they need to be represented, but I don't like them. They are political rivals. Why I'm saying that? Because Likud today has socialists inside, it has capitalists inside. And in fact, the ideology became very vague in a sense that it is not clear as it used to be in the past because when you are a ruling party for so many years, you have a lot of forces does not necessarily have connection to the past, to the roots. Not a lot of them know who is Jabotinsky, for instance. I mean, of course, they heard about the name, but they don't know about the ideology. It's a really long street, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a really long street. It in goes Tel Aviv, all the, by way, the way, way from Tel Aviv to Petah Tikva. <laughs> yeah, it goes is, through uh, five municipalities. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most popular street in Israel. Almost every city has a name uh, <laughs> after, as a street named after. Jabotinsky, more than Herzl, more, more than Ben-Gurion. And by the way, it can reflect the change in the Israeli society. You would expect that Herzl is the founding father. You would get more streets named after him or Ben-Gurion in a different way. But no, but Jabotinsky is the most popular street name in Israel. In any case, why I'm telling you that? Because there is a new reality since 1977. And I want to speak for a little bit about religion. We spoke about it in the end of the first episode. Until 1977, Israel was a completely secular state in many ways. I mean, on one hand, it's very interesting. Ben-Gurion gave the ultra-religious a lot of, you know, privileges. For instance, we had no public transportation on Saturday. We need to keep kosher in the IDF. But on the other hand, the country was completely secular in a sense that if you took the Yemenites' kids who were made aliyah or immigrated to the state of Israel, they used to cut off their hair. And it was something... The payers, yes. 
the Paris, and it was something traditional and very important. On the other hand, and I can tell you the stories of my grandfather, that if he wanted to absorb religion, the atmosphere or the environment was to look at him in a very odd way. It was not acceptable. Where did he live when he Jerusalem. moved to Israel? Jerusalem. But more than that, even in his job, they used to look at him in a very odd way. Why I'm telling you that? Because in 1977, one of the things that Menachem Begin did is to integrate the ultra-religious parties into their society in the state of Israel. What does it mean? Until 1977, the ultra-religious parties were part of labor government, but they did not have, you know, a lot of influence. They were not, by the way, a part of the government. They were supporting from outside for ad hoc matters. When Ben-Gurion needed them, he took them. When he didn't need them, you know, he didn't care what they were saying. <laughs> and same, oh, same with Golda part, and all of them. Yeah, but in a way, they were part of the government. I mean, they were allied with the Labour Party. Why I'm telling you that? Because Menachem Begin, as we spoke about it in the end of the first segment, he brought more Judaism into the politics. In a sense that, first of all, he brought the ultra-religious parties as part of the government. They became ministers. They get more budget, more funds, more benefits. He's the one who enlarged the permission to yeshiva boys not to recruit to the army. Not to go to the army. Yeah, yes. not to recruit to the army. He legitimized it uh, more than Ben-Gurion. He was the one to do it. More than that. He started to speak about, you know, Shabbat as part of the Jewish identity. It wasn't like that. And the most important thing, he saw them as part of the state. This is how it was. This is his contribution, I would say, to give more power to the ultra-religious in the state of Israel. Now, a lot of people in Israel, uh, I would say the old elite, they did not accept the notion that the ultra-religious, who are a minority, get more power, more proportion in the government, more than, you know, in life. And it created a lot of disagreements inside the Israeli society. When you speak about questions of religion and society, inside the state. Menachem Begin had his contribution to this new reality. So why I'm telling you that? Because it has another connection, which is very interesting. I want to speak for a little bit about the state role in the political system. Until Menachem Begin was elected in 1977, the state bureaucracy was completely supporting the government. More than that, the government used to appoint all the clerks, all the bureaucrats, Some of them were a part of the party. And yeah, you, needed to have, you needed to have the Pincasta Dome, like yeah. the, the, red, the Stadrut, the, the red... Uh, it's yeah. not a pouch, I don't recall the term in English. The red identity, we call it. But yeah, the red ID, you can call it, which ID. means that you are a part of the Stadrut, the union world. Now, why I'm telling you that? <laughs> Because for the Likudniks, it was completely a brand new world in a sense that they needed to start to govern. And it was the first time that there is a kind of a clash between the old bureaucracy and the new elected people. Why I'm mentioning that? Because what you see today is the peak of this conflict between the bureaucrats and the politicians in Israel. Another thing that I wanted to tell about Begin, I was speaking about Begin as a gentleman. On the other hand, he was a politician. I mean, his image was as if we were speaking about a gentleman, But on the other hand, he, you know, closed the eyes many times about things that was not appropriate inside Likud. For instance, I spoke about the Tel Chai fund. It was most likely a lot of corruption. We don't have a lot of knowledge about it. 
but it was uh, managed in a very inappropriate way. And Menachem Begin most likely knew about it, and he preferred to close his eyes. And uh, it does not, you know, according to the image of him. More than that, we could see that, you know, in the opposition, he used to say a lot of things about, you know, concessions to the Arabs, but as a prime minister, he did it. I mean, since the beginning, he said that he's willing to make peace with all the surrounding Arab states. And in fact, that's what he did in 1977 until 1982, until the complete withdrawal of Israel of Sinai. Why I'm mentioning that? Because if you remember, I spoke about the members of Irgun, the members of Herut who saw Menachem Begin as a commander. One of them is Geula Cohen. Geula Cohen is the mother of Minister Tzachia Negbi today. She was a fan of Menachem Begin. And she believed, you know, in territorial integrity with all his, her heart. And when Menachem Begin came back from Camp David and he brought the peace treaty to a vote in the Knesset, she voted against him. And more than that, she defected and created a new party named Tchia, Revival, <laughs> with a lot of members who decided they do not support Begin, they do not support the peace treaty with Egypt. By the way, Tzhak Shamir abstained. You remember yes. Erdomer, the future prime minister of Israel, he abstained himself yeah. Yeah. in the peace treaty. Later he became more moderate than that. Why I'm mentioning that? Because of the personality of Menachem Begin, he could get a lot of support from the Likudniks. By the way, most of them Mizrahi Likudniks. They were not connected directly to the ideology of Zev Jabotinsky, and therefore they were more tolerant to, I would say, territorial concessions to the Egyptians. They were more moderate. I think there was a lot less hatred between them and the Arabs. And also... Depends who uh, you ask, because if you read the Arabs no, in Israel... I'm not talking about these days. I'm talking about 30, 40 years ago. You know, you live in Jerusalem. I'm a Jerusalemite born and raised. And I used to see Arabs all the time. So it's a different thing that we see in the news than what the people experience in day-to-day life. That's what I'm trying to say. And also, another thing that was happening with Egypt is actually that Anwar Sadat himself came in person to Israel. And I think that's one of the biggest things that Israelis was actually surprised to hear their biggest enemy until now speaking in the Knesset. I think that's something that also helped to break the ice and the walls of suspicious. No, but it's more than that when you speak especially about Menachem Begin. First of all, I want to give a short introduction about the ideology of Likud when you speak about the territories in the state of Israel. Now, when Zev Jabotinsky uh, created the revisionist movement, we had a map. The map included not only Palestine, including Judea, Samaria, but including Transjordan. uh, Transjordan. And it was part of the ideology of Likud yeah. until 1988. Exactly, that was the phrase of uh, Beitar's song, the two banks. The, the West two banks. Bank in East Bank. Yes. But why I'm telling you that? Because that was the ideology of Menachem Begin until 1977, more than that. When I spoke about unification between Herut and liberals, the liberals disagreed with Begin. And therefore, they led two different ideologists inside the party. Herut led the ideology of what we call Eretz Israel Ashlema, the complete Eretz Israel, and liberals were not supportive of it. So that was the difference. Why I'm telling you that? Because for a lot of members of Likud, who were members of the Irgun, fighters in the Irgun, for them it was a kind of a break. 
it was very difficult to support this kind of, you know, move of giving up land for the Egyptians. My thesis is that Menachem Begin could promote it only with the support of the Mizrahi Jews who jointly could. Why? Because they were not attached to the ideology of Jabotinsky. Some of them were members of Beitar, of Revisionist Party, but the majority was what I call a new Israelis. I mean, this is the second generation of those who immigrated from the Arab states. They are less interested in ideology, you know, in principles. They are more interested in integrating into the Israeli society. They are more interested, you know, in education, in economy, in topics like that. And therefore, because Menachem Begin given them the opportunity to be part of the party or to integrate into the party or to be leaders in the party, they are less interested about it and they are allegedly less, you know, principled about things like that. This is one thing. Another thing which is more uh, important, don't forget, a lot of the members of the Irgun, the Ashkenazi members, they were seculars. Some of them were religious, but when Mizrahi Jews joined Likud, they brought with them the religion, the respect for the religion. And if you take it, it creates a kind of a combination that supported Menachem Begin from the outside. He brings the ideology of promoting religion or Jewish identity inside the state, and of course, they support him very much. And that is what we call the new Likud. This is how it looks like. Now, in order to complete Likud until 1983, as we spoke, I want to speak a little bit about Yitzhak Shamir. I mean, we have to remember that Menachem Begin signed the peace treaty with peace Egypt. Treaty with Egypt. Yeah, but you have to remember more things that he done. First thing, it was, you know, liberalization of the Israeli economy. Now, when I'm saying liberalization, it's completely relative. It's not complete liberalization in the American way, but he did some steps that were very interesting to the Israeli economy. By the way, it was advised by Milton Friedman in 1977. And before I proceed, I want to uh, remind to our listeners that Yitzhak Rabin stepped down because of the dollar accounts, as we call it, in the United States. The dollar accounts and the F-15 who arrived to Israel after Shabbat. No, no, the F-15 uh, led <coughs> to the, you know, dissolve of the government, but Rabin could not... Yeah, he took, he took off power uh, because of because the dollar Because of the dollar accounts, account, as we say, don't forget, he competed against uh, Shimon Peres about the leadership of the party, but he right. was not able because of the dollar accounts. I want to remind to our listeners what I mean. And in 1977, and it is amazing to speak about it, as if we speak about prehistoric period in Israel, you could not hold foreign bank account in Israel. Uh, no, more than that. You cannot yeah. hold dollars to some amount in your pocket. Right. And that was one of the reasons why Rabin needed to resign. He had a dollar account in the United States. It was against the law. The first move... And it was just for listeners. This dollar account was an account that he used it when he was the ambassador of Israel to the U.S. prior to his service as the prime minister, and his wife, Leah, did not close it. And she was still holding those dollars. And that's what happened. The most important thing in our case is that Menachem Begin, one of the first steps of his government is to abolish this law, to cancel the law, finally speaking. But it's not more than that. There is an urban legend that Shimon Peres promised in the past a car to every worker in Israel. And in fact, Menachem Begin was the one to create this policy. What does it mean? 
Since 1977, Menachem Begin tried to open up the economy completely. He created two parallel, I would say, paths. One thing is a lot of benefits to a lot of citizens of the state of Israel, and on the other thing, in the hyperinflation. Way, the hyperinflation, exactly. The economy was almost collapsed. We were in about to bankrupt. even appointed more than four ministers of finance yes. who could not deal with it. One of them used to say, lunatics, get out of the get roof, you don't yeah. have money. But the most important thing, why I'm telling you that? Because you have to remember that those are the years that the Mizrahi Jews kind of became more equivalent to the Ashkenazi. This is the beginning of the way to be economically more equivalent to the Ashkenazi Jews who had not all of them, but a lot of them because of the reparation of West Germany. They had more, I would say, economy benefits for, than for the For some of them, yes. For some of them, as for, I said, not all of them. Yeah, the Holocaust uh, survivors received a small pension from the German government, and that was a lot in Israeli terms of that time, okay. and it allowed a lot of Holocaust survivors to make a big leap in their quality of life. Exactly. And it created well, big gaps within the Israelis themselves. Why I'm mentioning that? Because you have to remember that when Menachem Begin opened up the economy to some extent, it was a kind of the beginning that Mizrahi Jews could get more benefits to have, you know, more, I would say, prosperity in their life. In some way, I would call it, they had more chances. Now, more than that, we spoke about the closed economy, that almost everything was part of the state when you speak economically. Menachem Begin, he was not the first one, by the way. It started with the Minister of Finance, Sapir, of Labor. But Menachem Begin tried to open up the market in many ways. By the way, you know who is the man, who is the prime minister, who did a lot about privatization? Um, Paris, no? No, no, it's Chak Rabin, between 1990. Oh, right, in, in his second term as prime minister. In his second term, he opened up the economy more than anyone else. But Menachem Begin was the first one. Why I'm mentioning that? Because you could see a new, I don't want to say Novorish Mizrahi Jews, but a new wealthy Mizrahi Jews. For instance, I can tell you about my grandfather. He used to work for Solel Bonnet, for the constructors. His sons became a private constructors. They have more money in their bank account. They have more freedom, and therefore, they became more dedicated Likudniks. And they are not the only one. More than that, in 1978, Begin's government promoted the law that uh, education is mandatory for everyone until the 12th grade. More and more people go get education. Until then, not all the people could get education. High school education, doing Menachem Begin, it was the first time that it was mandatory under the law that everyone needed to go to school. Yeah, prior to that, it was mandatory until eighth grade, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you're completely right. It wasn't the high school, but the high school fraction was the one that was missing. Exactly. Menachem Begin in 1978, it was one of the most important bills that he promoted. If you remember, we spoke about periphery. He started a project, Shikum Shunot, a rehabilitation yeah. of the neighborhoods in the periphery and, you know, neglected neighborhoods, even in the center of Israel. That was Menachem Begin. Now, if you take the peace treaty with Egypt and the social benefits between 1977 to 1981, you could expect that Menachem Begin would win the election easily. It was not the situation. In 1981, we suffered from hyperinflation. By the way, the peak was in 1984, more than 400% of hyperinflation. It seems that we're stuck. 
By the way, if you spoke about Menachem Begin as Nobel of Human Rights, if you look at you know, the campaign of labor in 1981, Menachem Begin was portrayed as a fascist. They used to say, we don't want more four years of fascism and things like that. Shulamit Aloni, the previous MK, used to speak about Menachem Begin, the victory of the fascists. This is how she phrased it. Of Ratz movement, and later uh, on the head of uh, Meretz movement. Exactly. Meretz is part of the Israeli system today. Why mentioning that? Because the election of 1981 was a very unique election. If you look at the polls, and by the way, I checked it lately, if you look at the beginning of the campaign, Labour had 64 seats in the polls, and Likud had only 18. And Begin, if you remember, I spoke that in 1977, he was not part of the campaign. In 1981, it was the campaign. He was, was not the, part of the campaign. Yeah. It was the campaign in a magical campaign. He was able to change the picture completely. He made a lot of rallies. If you yeah. remember, I spoke about his ability to speak the language of the people. Yeah. He had a very famous speeches, and in the end, he was able to win 48 seats against 47 of Labour. He had the majority of 61. Now, uh, very and also with story. the help of a couple of stupid sayings by uh, Motagur, may rest in peace, and Dudu Topaz, Dudu Topaz, who was talking about the Chachachim against the Mizrachim, and also. Uh, Motagur, um, who said, "We're going to break your bones just like we did to the Arabs." I'm sorry to, like, I, I want to quote the exact phrase. Well, we're going to we'll fuck, fuck you up. We'll fuck, fuck you up. Like, like we fuck the Arabs. Yeah, pardon French, but that was the actual saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, but now why I'm telling you that? Because this is another phenomenon that we discover in the Israeli political system. You don't win or you don't declare victory until the end. In 1981, all the polls or the exit polls of 1981 showed that the Labour Party had won. And the spokesperson of Shimon Peres already declared that I'm very happy to present to you the next prime minister of Israel, Shimon Peres. It was one o'clock in the evening. And then in four o'clock, when we discovered the real results, Menachem Begin won. The same story happens in 1996 and in 2015. It was almost the same story. Why I'm mentioning that? Because in my point of view, it has a strict connection to the relationship between the Mizrahi Jews and Likud. Mizrahi Jews can be very angry against Likud, but in the end they would vote for Likud because they feel that this is the only family that they can be belonged to. It happens, as I said, in 1981, 1996, and 2015. This is part of the story. Now, we spoke about the 1980s. Another interesting thing, let's speak about Ariel Sharon, who will become right. the future leader of Likud in 1999. Ariel Sharon and it is very important to speak about him because he was one of the founders of Likud in 1973. He grew up in a family that allegedly belonged to the Labour Party, supporters of Labour, although he rephrased his biography by saying that they did not really support Labour. I want to remind you why. He wanted to be elected to leadership of Likud and therefore he needed to present a different biography. By the way, he could do it in 1999. Today, no one can do it because you have the social media and you can prove everything if you want. In any case, he was one of the founders in 1973 of Likud, Menachem Begin, who used to admire generals, admired Sharon as well. But right after the election, after Rabin was appointed as prime minister in 1974, Sharon became his advisor, and he left the political system, at least the Knesset, for some time. In 1977, he created Shlom Tzion. It was a new party, a smaller party, 
He created it while he was still an active general in the IDF. We must, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. today it it's, it's a crazy thing that you can be no, no, a politician and a general at the same time. Don't forget Kobe. Uh, Moshe Dayan, as a chief of staff of the IDF, was a member of MAPAI. Right. Today it cannot happen. There is a differentiation between the IDF, and of course, the state's institutions and the parties, and thank God for that. In any case, emerged Shlom Tzion into Likud after the election in 1977. We have to remember one more thing. Although he was a leftist originally, he was one of the founding fathers of the settlements. He was appointed as Minister of Agriculture in Begin's cabinet, and almost from the beginning, he helped to the settlers to settle in mass numbers, sometimes illegally, by the way, and we must uh, emphasize it, because as much as I see it, he took them illegally from Gaza in the process, not in general. In any case, in 1982... Now you are referring to the disengagement. To the disengagement, but, uh, no doubt about it. But, you know, Sharon Ways, he was always an aggressive politician. That's what led to withdraw him from power in the Lebanon war, because he was deceiving the government with the operation Oranim. And he yeah, was telling I, the I government one thing, and then he was doing the opposite, along with Raful, the chief of staff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to speak about it. And by the way, why I'm mentioning that? Because I came to conclusion that in the end, in the Israeli political world, you don't have ideology, you have personality. I mean, you can, you know, preach... It's in every somehow. politics, if you can say that, so eventually. That, that was one of the discoveries in the Israeli political system. As we call it in here, it's all about the position. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I mentioning that? Because Begin did not want to appoint Sharon to be Minister of Defense. It was under a lot of pressure. And then in order to promote the evacuation of Jewish settlers or Israeli settlers from uh, Sinai Peninsula, according to the peace treaty with Egypt, he decided to appoint Sharon. And Sharon led, I would say, the uprooting of those Jewish settlers. And right after that, he turned into Lebanon. Let us, uh, you know, remind to the listeners that until 1982, Israel was suffering. It started in 1977-1978. The north in Israel was suffering from rockets and attacks from the PLO. In PLO. The also, we need to remind that it was the PLO and not Hezbollah until exactly. the Lebanon war. Exactly. And uh, Sharon wanted to solve the problem of Lebanon. He was uh, thinking about an idea, you call it Oanim Gadol, it was the name of the operation, to crown the leader of the Christians in Lebanon on the account of the Muslims, of the Shia, of the Palestinians. And therefore Israel went into the operation, promoted or uh, developed into what we call the first Lebanese war. By the way, I defined it as the Vietnam of Israel. I found a lot of similarities between the Vietnam of the Americans and to Lebanon of the Israelis. It was led by Sharon in some part the Palestinians assassinated Bashir Jumail, the leader of the Christians, the Maroons in Lebanon, as in a revenge, the supporters of Bashir Jumail made a massacre in Sabra and Shatila. Two refugee camps in, in uh, exactly, Lebanon. Two Palestinian refugee camps. And as a result, the government appointed a commission who decided that Sharon will not be able to serve as Minister of Defense and he needed to resign. Why I'm mentioning that? Because Sharon said something which was really brilliant about politics. No matter what, stay on the wheel when you speak about politics in Israel. Because if you say in 1980s that Sharon is going to be the prime minister of the state of Israel, 
later people would you know treat you as a lunatic it happens in 2001 now i want to remind people why first of all let's go back to 1983 which is a critical year in the history of the state and of likud begin decided to retire he said i, I cannot take it yeah i cannot take it there anymore and he decided to resign he declared it in august 1983 and it was the first time in the history of likud we had the primaries to the leadership of likud two candidates one is itzhak shamir if you remember i spoke about opening up branches and bringing more mizrahi jews into the party and the second candidate was david levy a mizrahi typical jew everyone was sure that david levy is going to win but it was amazing a lot of mizrahi jews decided to give shamir and therefore he won the election and became the leader of likud and the prime minister of the state of israel that is the end of the second episode of this podcast well technically yeah because we're going to go back to sharon later on when we're going to talk about the new likud and the It is interesting because we wanted to speak about Shamir also. We spoke about him at the beginning, but we didn't get to the end with the Targil Masriach that Peres did, you know, the unity government that they had. We're so gonna, we, we can do it in the next year. Yeah, period. it's an interesting era because when we're looking at the last year that Israel went to three consecutive elections and you always had a tie between the Likud party and Kachol Lavan, You can say that it was always the same in the 80s when the Likud party and the Labour party always had give and take the average of 40 mandates each. So you almost had a tie in every one of these elections, which led to the unity government. And then later on, when things started to change, we will touch that point also later on. Why did Shamir lose and... What happened in 1992, because it is important when we'll get to speak about Netanyahu and his first time as the head of opposition. Okay, very good. So, Eli, I really want to thank you for your time. It was really interesting. I'm sure that our listeners will have many questions. And once we're going to upload the episode, we're going to have the questions. I'll, I'll try to bring them up and along with you to provide the answers. So I want to thank you for now and good have pleasure. a good evening in Jerusalem. our beautiful uh, capital, and we'll talk again soon. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for being with us. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan. www.balagan.ltd for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now and have a great day.